just before I came into the hall uh, this evening, Chaz came up to me and said that somebody came up to him at the end of the sitting and asked a question about how to listen to the Dharma talk. What should she do while she's listening? Should she meditate or, you know, what should she do? What's the right way to listen to a Dharma talk? And it's actually a really good question. So that's why I want to address it. Because the Buddha said that in addition to actually practicing the meditation, the instructions, and following the teachings as a support for awakening, he also said that actually hearing the Dharma is a support for awakening. Not only a support, but someone could awaken by hearing the Dharma at any time. And yet to actually listen to the Dharma, listen to the teachings of the Buddha, it really requires a kind of listening where you are very present and receptive. So it is, a, again, a meditative awareness that you bring to the listening, but it's not a, a med meditative awareness where you're shutting out the experience and kind of going into a meditation experience, but rather the opening and the receptivity to the words, to the meaning of the words, to deeply listening. So in order to do that, it does require what I would call an embodied presence, where you actually feel a quality of your body sitting here. You know that you're here. You know that you're listening. You know that the words are coming to you. you feel and sense your responses, seeing whether it resonates, it doesn't resonate. You know, so you're very present and attuned with the, um, with the speaking of the Dharma. So it's a continued practice. It's an uh, em embodied listening practice, we might call it. So you'll, you're, you're getting uh, a number of different meditative practices over this weekend. So that's just one more. So many of you, there's a, a quite a number of you who actually have just finished or about to finish your first full day of a silent retreat, and one that goes from the moment you wake up till the moment you go to, to sleep at night. And that really is call for celebration. It's call for congratulations. There is really a sense of achievement that you've gone through it, you know. We, we come, many people come who have not been here before, come with many expectations and, you know, not real uncertainty, not really knowing what you're getting yourself into, and yet you come. You, as I said on the first night, you, you take the leap, you jump in, and, um, uh, and I know from some of the people who I uh, listened to, who I talked with in my small group this afternoon, I know that it hasn't been easy. I know that it's been pretty difficult for some people. And yet what's always interesting to me is that you're still here. <laughs> now, I don't know whether that's because you drove with another person or you can't, you know, your car's not here and you can't flee or, um, you know, you have an airplane reservation tomorrow or something. But you're still here. 
And I think that's really wonderful that you know that you're conti you continue uh, with it, you stay with it, and that's really what it takes. It takes that kind of uh, commitment uh, to the practice and to the teachings and staying with whatever is happening no matter what. And that's how we expand, that's how we grow, that's how we learn. We go beyond the, the limitation of who we take ourselves to be, how we know ourselves, and we move into new territory, into unknown territory. And that's all part of the path that we're walking right now. In listening to some of the people in the group this afternoon, it reminded me of my very first weekend retreat that I did. And I wanted to um, just say a little bit about that because um, this was over 30 years ago. And the first weekend that I did, uh, first uh, retreat that I did was a weekend, just, just like this, from a Friday evening to a Sunday afternoon. And for me, I was, by, by the middle of the Saturday afternoon, I was about to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> it was so hard. It was the hardest thing that I had ever done. And I really didn't know if I could do it. I really didn't know whether I could make it. It was just a small retreat, actually. There were, this was back in the late 70s when all this was just beginning here. And uh, my teacher was uh, James Barris, who was just starting to begin teaching then. And there were only about 15 or 20 people in this house that we rented and had to cook, they cooked the food. But it was just so hard, sitting and walking exactly the same schedule that we're doing here, sitting and walking, sitting walking, looking at my own mind. And I just, I didn't know whether I could get through the day. I really was having a hard time, so I went up to James and I just said, I don't think I can do this. I just can't make it. And we had been friends. We'd been um, getting to know each other over a few years. And he was, he, he told me later that he was pretty upset that I was having a difficult time because he really hoped that I would have a good time. He, would re he really hoped that my experience would be a good one. And then what he realized was you can't hope that somebody has a good experience. People are going to have the experience that they have. You know, and, the, and exact, we, we, whatever we go through is exactly what we need to go through because we have to see our own mind. We have to see our own uh, difficulties. And so he loves telling that story still, how he wished that I had a good experience, um, which as, as you develop as a d Dharma teacher, you realize that that is uh, um, not going to get you anywhere, hoping people have a good experience. So I basically, he told me, just go for a walk. Just go for a walk. Look at the trees. Just relax. Don't, you know, don't try so hard. You're trying too hard. And I went and I uh, did just what he said. And things opened up. I relaxed a little bit more. And I did make it through the end of the retreat. I, I remember that there was w uh, one man there who, and I still remember so many years ago, that there was one man there who clearly had been practicing for some time, and he was so steady. He sat, and he walked, and he sat, and he walked. And there was a patio in the back, and he just would get up from his meditation cushion and go to his walking space and walk back and forth and back and forth, just so one-pointed and so steady. 
And, I, and in my reflection, I really feel that it was his steadiness that supported me, too, to get through. There was some way that by watching him and by seeing, being, being inspired by him, it gave me some faith in the practice. It gave me some faith in what I was actually doing, even though I had no sense at all of what was really going on or, or why it was so hard or why I was struggling so much. But he was just, he just really just was like so strong that I, he was like an anchor for me in a way. And yet when I finished that retreat, there was something that felt changed in me, even though it was so hard and I, I didn't understand or have any sense of what this was about. I felt like there was something that was right about the experience. And that's what allowed me to continue. And I feel that, and I see this again and again, that unless somebody has some kind of faith that is activated in some way in the meditation or in the teachings, there's really no impetus to continue. There's no reason. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to to keep putting oneself through this very difficult practice, and this is a difficult practice. There's no two ways about it. And I know many of you have experienced that today. And yet something, there has to be something that keeps us going. We have to be in contact with, in touch with, something deep within ourselves that says, yes, there's something right about this. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to p- keep putting myself in, in through, the, through the form of the sitting and the walking and sitting walking. Coming back coming back to another retreat, coming back to the teachings. And no one can give us this faith. This is what's so interesting. Nobody can really make us feel faithful or or trusting in the practice. It's really something that we have to really awaken, that something has to awaken within ourselves. And why that happens is is really a mystery. Why some people feel that that deep faith, and other people don't, and they can just sort of dismiss it or go in a different direction. But this, but something is, it needs to be uh, awakened in us for us to keep going. It seems that it's really this, uh, this quality of willingness. I think this is one of the key factors in the practice, is willingness that arises out of the faith, that arises out of the trust that no matter what, I'm going to keep going. And again, no, but this is primary. Nobody can give us this willingness, which is a kind of will, this moving forward. I'll move forward with it. St. Francis de Sales, who is a, a, was a 16th century Roman Catholic saint, he said this uh, quote that I really like a lot. He said, bring yourself back to the point quite gently even if you do nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back a thousand times, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be well employed. Even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back a thousand times. This is that quality of faith and that uh, willingness. I mean, because to do that, I mean, you've all done, I, I know all of you have done it today, is coming back and coming back and coming back. 
meditation really is this art of returning. It's the art of returning. And we're returning back to here. We're coming back, returning back to our direct experience. Whether we like it or whether we don't like what we meet when we come back, this is the art of the practice, the art of the meditation, returning back again and again. This is an invitation, really. It's an invitation to us. Even when I read some of the discourses of the Buddha, there's this very lovely wording in the way that the the Pali is translated, where the Buddha is often uh, actually offering this invitation. He says, take this if you like. Take it if you like, almost like he's offering medicine, you know, medicine for our dis-ease. You know, the Buddha was often likened to being a healer or a doctor who's offering us some kind of uh, medicine for our woes, for our sorrows, for our pains. And but he's saying, take it if you like, and then see what happens. It's not anything that uh, is expected of you or demanded of you, or it's not the only way. It's just here, it's an invitation. And so then we look and we sense and see if it's an invitation that is worthy of us, something that we're interested in. That's all. It's very gentle. It's very compassionate. Something has to really resonate for us individually. It's the only way that we'll keep going. What's offered to us, as we know, is really the map. The map, the map to be free of our suffering, being free of our dukkha. A map that helps us identify the causes and conditions that bring about our suffering and ways to let go of those conditions of suffering. This is, the, this is what's being offered to us, a way out, a way out of our pain, our sorrow, our anguish. And it's tw- the tw- 2,600 years this practice has continued, it's carried on. And in some ways it's more popular now in the West than it ever has been before. There's just something that speaks to us as individuals that not only speaks to us, but actually works for us, frees us, frees us from these deep sorrows and anguishes. One of the things that we see when we first come to um, a retreat, no matter if it's your first retreat, whether it's your hundredth retreat, the first day is a day where we meet these difficult mind states. And it's written in the text, the Buddhist text, what you're going to encounter. And what you're going to encounter are called these five difficult mind states, the hindrances. There's five of them, and they're laid out they're talked about, the antidotes to them are talked about. The first one is the wanting mind. The second one is the not wanting mind. The third one is sleepiness. The fourth one is restlessness. And the fifth one is doubt. Doubt about your, your capacity to practice, doubt about the teachings, doubt about your experiences. And these are the the patterns of mind, these, these fairly um, strong, habitual patterns of mind, the, the mind that wants a different experience than the one we're having, 
the mind that wants to push away the experience that we are having, this push and pull and push and pull, and then being tired and exhausted or, or restless and agitated and irritated and you know, not being able to sit still or quiet and wanting something else and then feeling doubtful about the whole thing. We have multiple hindrance attacks, not just one hindrance, but multiple hindrances start to come. And this is, this is not unusual. This is, uh, this is, is if, if we're um, going to expect something, I mean, any of us who have sat many retreats, we know this is what to expect. This is what to expect on the first day. And I wish you had a few more days to practice right now. I don't know how you're feeling. You may not wish you had a few more days. <laughs> Some of you might think, thank goodness it's over tomorrow afternoon. But I know that on, you know, by the second day, the third day, the fourth day, those difficult states of mind do start to settle. They stu do start to calm. And we are able to be a bit more present and, and more at ease with what is arising in our experience. And this is the, the transformation that happens. We begin to let go of the struggle. What we find is when these difficult, more painful states of, of mind arise, we don't like them and we resist them and we want them to be different and we want them to change, particularly if we have lots of ideas about what the meditation practice is supposed to be like. That we're supposed to come here and feel calm and light and open and happy and heartful and floating and you know, I mean, I'm sure some of you have that, you know, wish. Of course we want to feel good. We want to feel that lightness of being. And we can aspire to that. Aspirations are important in this practice. But yet we have to also let go. We have to let go of the ways that we're grasping grasping on to these ideals and letting go of the ways we resist and reject. Even when we find ourselves feeling sleepy, we find ourselves restless, we find ourselves doubtful, we want to see if we can still open to that, allow that, come to this place of acceptance so we're not struggling. When we talk about letting go, what we're talking about letting go of is the struggle. We're letting go of the fight. And what it is that we're fighting is ourself. We're fighting our own mind. We're fighting our own habits of mind. And the more that we can see and identify the way that we struggle within our own mind, we begin to see, we understand that we don't want to add more on top of that. We don't want to add more criticism, more judgment, more reactivity rejecting, manipulating on top of that because we're really just reinforcing the pattern, putting more wood on the fire, this fire that we actually want to let die out and cool. We want to be, feel more cool, more at ease in ourselves, but yet we keep putting more wood on the fire. And we don't understand why, why we're still burning and so hot in, the, in, our, in our difficult states of mind. So a big part of the, of the training 
is learning about how we put wood on the fire, how we pile thoughts on top of thoughts, negative thoughts on top of negative thoughts, on top worry on top of worry, fear on top of fear, expectation on top of fear. I mean, this whole kind of quagmire of difficult thoughts and mind states. How do we let go? Come to a place where there is more allowing of ourself in a basic way of just, I'm feeling resistant. Okay, that's what I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling agitated. Okay, I'm just going to let this agitation happen and be present, be mindful, feel how it feels in my body, feel, pay attention to what's happening in my mind. And as I bring my mindful attention to that, that begins to bring more spaciousness to my experience. I'm not adding more, I'm not fueling, and that starts to break up. That pattern starts to break up. As the thoughts begin to break up, the feelings of agitation, irritation, anger start to break up, and I begin to feel a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more at ease. But yet we need to understand we're bringing The teachings help bring some understanding to what's actually going on. What we can see when we pay attention to our mind, what you could probably see today, is that there's basically two, these two primary movements of mind. The two that are the first two of the hindrances, these two primary movements, the movement of grasping and the movement of rejection or aversion. The grasping, actually, generically, they're both under the heading of grasping, but we can break them up because any time you're you're either pushing away or holding on, there's a tight fist. You've got to kind of push, push things away or grab things and hold on. And in both cases, it requires a tight fist. That's grasping. And so we can actually see how Either there is the holding on in the mind, wanting, holding, attaching, expecting on one side, and on the other side, the aversion, the the pushing, the resistance, the fear, the not wanting on the other side. And this is really what makes up the core of our personality, is the wanting and the not wanting, grasping and rejecting, which also can be called hope on the one side, hoping for pleasure and and comfort and ease, and on the other side, the uh, fear of pain and the fear of discomfort. And so we can feel, and, and I'm talking about an actual grasping aspect of the mind, not a, a clear aspiration that is moving from the heart for our happiness, for our well-being, for our Uh, awakening, but when we're holding on to that ideal of what we think can happen and why isn't it happening and it should happen now and we're demanding it and controlling and manipulating, that hope, the hope for achieving something, the, the hope for acquiring something, the hope for arriving somewhere according to our ideals, and then at the same time fearing that we're going to wind up in pain and discomfort. And they work in tandem. 
They work together and we're pushed and pulled and pushed and pulled between these two. And this is really what is our dukkha, our suffering, our pain, that this is, this is what is being addressed in these teachings. This is um, uh, a poem from uh, George Bouger. Be- uh, um, it's a, a little bit long, but I, but I really like it because I think it really kind of points to this world of uh, um, imagination that we live in, this world that is bound up with these hopes and fears and fantasies and um, concerns. It's called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house not doing much of anything, the box set of complete works of Verdi unopened, the complete Proust unread, the French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closets and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt, the reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the window of the high-rise down the road, and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula, the 30-day course in Spanish whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remained unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at the Madrid Hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them and that by tape six or so they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute, but I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I have constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias, and I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her, her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet, while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. Breaking the fantasy, breaking up the fantasy, so that where do you wind up? Standing in a steamy kitchen, fixing up a little risotto with a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. Really calming down to earth just coming down to earth. That's what this practice is about, just coming back to reality, to just what's here, what we were speaking about before, something so ordinary, something so simple as even one breath, 
just that relief of taking one breath or hearing one sound, hearing the wind whistle through the windows, hearing the silence, hearing somebody cough, tasting the food that's served at lunch, taking a nap, just resting through the day, something so ordinary. But usually our days are not that simple because our minds are filled with so much. They're usually filled with so many worries and concerns and fears, so many hopes, dreams. But freedom, when we talk of freedom, freedom is the ending of this movement. Freedom is the ending of this movement. And as one of my teachers, Hamida Lee, from the Diamond Heart School says, the ending of this movement is the birth of love. The ending of this grasping, holding and rejecting, that's when we drop into love. That's when love is born. Because we are here and we're not struggling. We're not in resistance. We're really accepting just the simplicity, this beautiful simplicity, which may not feel so beautiful, clearly. It may not seem so beautiful when we're just finding our way, where we're just orienting or navigating in this new way. It may seem like, what? This? This is what this is all about? I loved when, when Chaz was giving the walking meditations this, this morning and said, as he was walking back and forth, he said, you're going to have a good relationship with boredom. You know, that's what, what the walking meditation begins like. You just get, get, to get used to being bored. And maybe that's a good thing. Because when we're bored, maybe we're not so caught up in our, our dreams and our fears and our, all our fantasies. We're just bored. It's like, come on, isn't there anything else but this, you know? I mean, depending on how much we are clinging to having some different kind of experience or expecting some other kind of experience, we're just bored. And I, and, I, and I believe that boredom, if we're really able to stay with it, if we actually can not just find the next thing to fill that hole of boredom, that that's actually a doorway for us. It's a doorway into freedom. It's a doorway into really being here fully and, and beginning to connect and beginning to engage with the fullness of our experience because we're not looking for anything else. We're not looking for anything else to happen. It's not, and when we're not looking for anything else to happen, it doesn't mean that nothing's going to happen. We know that for sure. Something's always going to be happening. As long as we are in a human body, with a human mind, you can be assured that something's going to happen. So that is our entrance. That is our doorway. Leaving things as they are. What is, is what is. What is, is what is. This acceptance is letting go of our struggle for wanting other experiences. And some people think, oh, that's just a passive kind of acceptance that's already come up in the questions today. Well, isn't accepting, I mean, then how do you get anything done? 
how, how do you actually continue on your way? But it's so, when we really come into this place of acceptance and allowing, we're able to access all of these resources that are usually so covered over. This, this capacity to just be here and see what's true and what's real and say, okay, how, what, what, how can I meet this? How can I meet what's in front of me with clarity and with wisdom, with love, with compassion, just this? What's the next thing to do? I came across this uh, uh, statistic a few weeks ago when I was reading a magazine, and I, and I read that there are uh, 1.02 billion hungry people in the world right now. This is a, a United Nations report, and that means one in seven people right now in this world are hungry. And as I read it, I noticed that I could feel like, oh, you know, it's like I don't, there's a part of me that doesn't want to know that. You know, I can feel where, where I kind of want to turn away from it because it's, it's almost too overwhelming for my brain, for my mind, for my heart. But as I breathe and I just let it in, just let it in, that's the truth, that's the reality. And as I let it in I, and, and let my heart be touched by that, then I can see, well, how do I want to respond? What is it that I want to do about that? Do I just want to bury my head in the sand? Or is there a way that my, my heart moves in a true response to that fact? Where my heart opens in, in contact with that suffering, with the knowledge of that suffering, and then come alive into that rather than falling asleep because of it. So, so I trust that as I actually let myself be in contact with the truth, and when we talk about truth, we're talking about 10,000 sorrows and 10,000 joys. This is really what makes up reality or truth. It's not one or the other. And as I let myself open to the truth, then I can see how am I going to respond because otherwise I'm just kind of cloistered in my own small, narrow, limited world, protecting, defending, controlling, manipulating, which are all the strategies of the ego self, the egoic self, of the solidified narcissistic self, wants to protect its little world so it doesn't have to actually feel pain or the fearing of the pain, the fearing of what would happen if I really allowed myself to open. Joanna Macy, this wonderful um, Buddhist meditation teacher and social activist, she calls this, uh, when she says, when you come into, con when you let yourself come into contact with suffering, the heart awakens. She calls this a tantric flip a tantric flick, be, flip because you wouldn't imagine, it's, a, it's counterintuitive. We, don't, we, can't, we, we think that we have to move away from the pain. We have to move away from that which is, which is hard to be around and be with because, because we don't think that we have the capacity to deal with it. 
but it's actually the opposite of what we think, of what the small mind understands. And we actually flip. We flip into awakening because the heart, our heart of compassion opens if we allow it. Because we are basically compassionate people. We are basically good people. It is only through our kind of covering over, through the hiding, through the defending, through the protecting, that we also close off our heart. We close off our heart of compassion, our heart of love. And by opening, we open that capacity, which is why it's called the birth of love. When we let go of the struggle of this grasping and aversion, grasping and aversion, which is the controlling aspect of the ego mind, the ego mind that thinks it knows, it thinks it's, it knows what's best. And if we don't examine that, we're trapped in it. We're caught in it. We're caught in our fantasy. And so through the mindfulness, through the cultivation of our attention, we begin to look and see what's real and what's true. We begin to understand the way that our mind begins to fabricate these realities, these fantasies, these hopes and dreams, these fears that don't really have a basis in reality. We just believe that they do. We believe our own mind. This is really the first noble truth of the Buddha coming into uh, understanding the first noble truth, which is that there is suffering in this life. There is dukkha in this life. Dukkha, this word dukkha is translated as in many different ways. Dukkha, dukkha being this unsatisfactory aspect of life, of conditional reality because all things are going to come and go, come and go. There's nothing we can hold on to. As much as we'd like to keep things the way we'd like them, as much as we love to manipulate our experiences so they'll be the experiences that we want and we can hold on to them, we can't. We don't know what's going to happen in any given moment. One of the reasons that it's so difficult to let go is because when we let go, it means that we're letting go into uncertainty. It means we're letting go into not knowing. When we let go of our control, the egoic control, the manipulation of our experiences, our hopes and our fears, when we let go, we don't know what's going to happen any given moment moment to moment to moment. And that's the most difficult place to be in the unknowing until we finally get comfortable there. I mean, that takes some practice. We do get comfortable there in the not knowing because we are actually more in contact with what's real and what's true. And we're more in contact with the Dharma or the law of nature that things unfold according to a natural law. So we let go into that, and we feel the uncertainty. We live on the edge of that uncertainty. And this is what we really need to begin to become familiar with, is this quality, this truth of uncertainty. 
things change so quickly. I mean, look at this day. I've been feeling this day, you know, from this, we have this one full day together. We woke up this morning, it's dark, windy, cold, and just watching and feeling and sensing the changes that have happened all through the day. So quickly, here we are. It was six o'clock when we woke up, and now it's 14 hours later. You know, I, for me, you know, on one hand, it can feel like it goes quickly. On the other hand, it can feel like you've been here for a year. But, <laughs> but so much has happened today. Even though you might say, well, nothing happened today on the on one hand. But it's such a contradiction, isn't it? It's such a paradox. So much happened. So many thoughts. So many moods. So many sensations in the body. So many different experiences. And they change so quickly from dark to light, light to dark, the wind to calm, to being settled, to being agitated, to being hungry, to being fed, to being tired, to being awake, all through the day. One time I was with Jack Cornfield, one of the teachers in this tradition, and I don't remember what was actually happening. I was out uh, somewhere with him at Spirit Rock, and something just changed really fast, and he just kind of turned to me and he said um, these words. He said, with a smile on his face, he says, karma can change as fast as the swish of a horse's tail. As fast as the swish of a horse's tail. Things happen before we even can imagine or expect them. I was just in Canada um, a few uh, days before I came here. I was teaching there last weekend for the Regina Insight Meditation uh, community there. And I stay with the woman who's the community Dharma leader who leads the community. And um, she uh, uh, was making, uh, it was the evening, she was making a hot drink for us. And, and this evening it was a drink that required both um, a hot water and hot milk. You know, I think it was, um, I can't remember, Postum or something, you know, some one of those drinks. And she had a hot, uh, a water kettle, a stainless steel hot water kettle that you place onto a rubber electrical fixture that plugs in and, and you flip it on and it heats up the water and then when it's done it goes off. One of those stainless steel kettles. And she had it on her stove because of the way her kitchen was arranged. So the whole little um, rubber plate was on the stove. It was on a burner that didn't work so, so that was why she had it there. But she had fixed the hot milk on the burner right in front of the hot kettle. And because she was in a little bit of a hurry, she was, it was just, you know, that moment of not really paying attention. <laughs> she took the, the pan with the hot milk, it was boiling. She took the pan with the hot milk off and put it on, poured it into the cup. And then she took the kettle with the hot water, poured that into the cup and put the kettle onto the hot burner. And the bottom of the hot, uh, a hot kettle is actually all rubber. That's what has all the electrical elements and everything. So she put the hot kettle, uh, uh, hot water kettle, right onto that hot burner. And about, oh, it must have been three seconds, four seconds later, I'm standing there and go, uh, Donna, I'm, it's something smelling. It sounds like an elect. It smells like an electrical smell. It's like there's something really burning. And we look over at the hot kettle, and it's just 
slowly sinking into the <laughs> hot burner. And the whole bottom of the hot, uh, the hot water kettle just melted right into the stove burner. And <laughs> she pull, started pulling it up a little bit, and it was just, you know, like tar, you know, just threads of the tar. <coughs> and this, you know, beautiful uh, kettle and the stove, right? So the whole, one, one burner didn't work anyhow. Now she had another burner. It was just filled with all this rubbery, uh, um, tar-like stuff that was very gently cooling into a thick, hard, <laughs> rubbery mess onto the burner. How unfortunate, right? How unfortunate. And so that's what happens. We think, oh, no, it's just the most unfortunate thing that, that can happen. Now she only had two burners, you know, she has gas, she has, she has groups there. How unfortunate. So the next day, we went out, we got her a new, brand new tea kettle. And then she called her landlord and told him to see if he could get the element fixed. And he came in and said, well, you know, it's a pretty old stove. I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to get it. But, you know, it's such an old stove that if I can't get the burner, I'll get you a new stove. So he goes to the store and can't get the element. So he says, you're going to have a new stove. So two days later, she has a brand new stove. How fortunate. <laughs> Who knows? How, how, can we, how can we control these? She's lived there for about 10 years with that old 40-year-old store stove with one burner broken, you know, rusty. <laughs> And here this thing happens, it was, you know, oh, she, was, she was actually pretty equanimous through the, through the whole thing. Oh, well, you know, what can you do? Things change as fast as the swish of a horse's tail, out of our control. So as we let go, as we let go, things happen. <laughs> Fortunate, unfortunate. Fortunate, unfortunate. We don't know. The things that we think are going to be unfortunate turn, can turn out to be very fortunate. And we could be worried and upset and complaining and frightened, and, but then right away, so tur it turns around. It's fortunate. And the same, we can think, oh, how fortunate. Now I've gotten what I've always wanted. I got my cookie, you know. And the next thing, <laughs> something else happens, some kind of, you know, there's peanut allergy or something, you know, and then you're, so who knows? So part of this path is to see if we can begin to, as we let go, to enter into this uncertainty, to feel more comfortable, to have a certain tolerance for that uncomfortable, uncomfortableness. Yes, it's not so comfortable. It's not so easy not to know. It's not so easy for us to be in that more vulnerable or more fragile place where, where anything could happen at any time. But the truth is that we already know that anyhow. Otherwise, why would we be so scared? <laughs> we're, so, we, we, we're just trying to hold it all together because we know deep in our heart that everything's going to fall apart. I mean, this whole thing is heading right for death, <laughs> right? <There's no laughs> We're going to die. 
you know? So why not start to live? Live our life now. Not to live a life where we feel we're already dead. You know, we're already so covered up, we're already so contracted, we're already so defended because we're so afraid of what's going to happen or what might happen and seeing how difficult it is to control our experiences. So we let go. And what's so beautiful and what, what, we're, what the, in, the invitation is for us is to actually give it a chance, kind of find out. Find out what happens when you dive in and, and open up and let go. And I have to say, you know, many of you have done that by coming here this weekend. Many of you didn't know what you were getting yourself into, and you took the leap. You, came, you, you jumped right into the uncertainty. It, you may not be <laughs> very, you may have some regrets, you know, but it, you may feel, oh, how unfortunate that I did that. But then in a couple of days, who knows? Something else might happen. You may have planted some seeds. You may have um, generated some conditions to, that shift your mind, your heart. In a couple of days, you go, oh, you know, I feel so different. I just, I feel a little lighter. I feel a little bit more at ease. I'm, I'm connecting better with people. My heart's a little bit more open. I feel more love flowing more different expressions of love coming through my heart, my being. Who knows? But it's an invitation. We give it a try. We see what happens. I think I have time to read this to you. This was a, um, I get the magazine called The Week. And I really love it because it has little articles from all the different uh, newspapers and magazines that were uh, 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 published that week. And uh, this one's from the New York Times, and it's on an uncertainty. And it's, uh, uh, um, I'll read it to you. It's uh, Daniel Gilbert who wrote for the New York Times. He said, uh, this, he said, Americans are smiling less and worrying more, uh, said Daniel Gilbert. <laughs> A new Gallup Healthways Wellbeing Index shows that happiness is down and sadness is up, and that anxious Americans are smoking more and sleeping less. The obvious explanation is the recession, but most middle-class Americans have more luxury goods, food, and money than their grandparents ever did, and they didn't live in an unremitting funk. Our real problem is not a lack of money, it's uncertainty. Caught somewhere between a recession and a recovery, we don't know if stocks are rising or falling or whether we still will be employed next week. To see why that's so difficult, consider the results of a Dutch experiment. Some test subjects knew they would receive an intense shock 20 times. Others were informed that only three of the 20 shocks would be intense. Yet the subjects facing the mostly mild shocks, those are the ones who only got the three out of the 20, the subjects facing mostly mild shocks sweated more and had faster heartbeats than the others. Why? People feel worse when something bad might occur 
than when something bad will occur. So it is with the prevailing angst, it isn't a matter of insufficient funds, it's a matter of insufficient certainty. It's a funny thing. It's a very funny thing. We'd rather know than not know. It almost seems like the way we're wired. But it isn't what's necessary as we develop and expand our consciousness. And that's what this path is about, this spiritual path, this journey that we're on. It's one to raise our consciousness, to refine our consciousness to higher and higher levels. And as we do that, one of the doorways is to feeling more comfortable with this not knowing, with this uncertainty, because that's the way things are in reality. We let go into the not knowing, which brings us closer to and more aligned with the Dharma, with the way things are. This truth that all things are impermanent, that all things are changing moment to moment to moment. There's nothing whatsoever that we can hold on to. There's nothing that I can own and call my own. It's all this empty phenomena, rising and falling, coming and going, moment to moment. And more and more we feel this selfless nature of all things, that there's, there's nothing solid, there's nothing um, fixed, but everything coming and going, coming and going, conditions dependent on other conditions, arising and falling, this selfless nature empty nature. This is when we open and fall into what we might call the, the, the mystery, because we can't name that, we can't fix that, we can't actually put a concept on top of that and say that's it, that's the way it is. It's, it's, it's too mysterious at that point. We kind of fall into something that we can't really name or know except for our direct knowing, our direct experience. And in that way, it's very personal. It's very personal to each one of us what we actually encounter as we let go and as we fall back and into reality. We call it reality but it's rather mystical at that level because all names and all forms disappear. Can't really say at that point what is happening. And the mind gets quiet. We get very still. And we're just here, sensing and feeling maybe not knowing very much at all, <laughs> and yet we're here, awake, alive. And then from here we see what happens, what happens next. 
and we can be assured that something will happen. So I'll end there. I think I just want to read this one more um, piece from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, this um, Tibetan master uh, who was teaching in the 70s and the 80s. He said, the lion's roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, including the emotions, is a workable situation, a reminder in in the practice of meditation. We realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected, nor must we regard them as regressive or a return to confusion. We must respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. And I leave you with that because that's one of my, that's one of the teachings that went in and I remember it a lot when I'm in the middle of some chaos. I remember uh, Trungpa's words. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. Let's sit for just a moment together. Thank you for your attention. (coughs) And so we have a half an hour for some walking meditation now, and we'll come back for our last sitting of the evening at 9 o'clock. It'll probably be just a bit shorter because I know many of you are very tired. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.